0: Not following a madhab, one specific madhab, will make that person an atheist.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Kalam Kovi. Uh, today we have a special guest, Mufti Abdullah.
0: Assalamu alaykum
1: So um, I heard that you're Sheikh Ahmed's teacher and Farhan's teacher. You're right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I heard a lot of good things about you so um, could you tell me a, bi- a bit about yourself
0: a bit about myself yeah. Uh, yeah. so I grew up here I was born near Medina Masjid so closer to downtown and uh, I went to school here and basically lived a normal life until I was about like mm, I would say 14 15 and then I traveled overseas and then I studied in uh, India uh, for approximately eight eight years, eight and a half years, yeah, sure. and then I just recently graduated in twenty sixteen, and then ever since then I've been uh, teaching uh, in the Scarborough community, and I actually used to lead the Juma here at Masjid Zakaria for three years. Yeah, so this is back when the Sheikh Abu Bakr was still the Imam here, right, so I used to lead Jumas. Um, when he, when he went for Hajj, I led Juma. and then after that I used to lead the second Jumas and I went on uh, through Mara Aslam's era. And then right before uh, Mara Ahmad was hired, I left. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> to get us yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, so that's basically me. And then now I just serve the community. I, I go places, I, I speak and that's basically what I do.
1: So we're gonna dive right
0: into the topic, okay? First question. What is a madhab? What is a madhab? So that's a that, that's a that's a that's a good question. Um so first I guess what we could do is we could we could break it down. Uh, that the word madhab uh, in the Arabic language refers to any path, right? So a path, a way, a methodology. Um now in our societies uh, And this has been the social norm For like almost a thousand years now When a person says madhab uh, A person thinks of a specific school of thought uh, Within Islamic jurisprudence uh, Within fiqh So a person says madhab Someone thinks of Abu Hanifa A person says madhab Someone thinks of Imam Malik Someone thinks of Imam Shafi'i Imam Ahmad right? Or someone thinks of not following a madhab right? Meaning Meaning a madhab now, right? Once upon a time, it didn't really mean that, but now for us, a madhab refers to uh, a specific ideology and methodology of fiqh, right? Following a specific line, ideology, way of thinking when it comes to uh, tackling new issues, deducing rulings, uh, and and uh, our way of interpreting the Quran, our way of interpreting the Hadith, right? That's basically what a madhab is.
2: Right. so what happens if I just follow the Quran and Sunnah and I leave Mustab completely? What is is there? Are there like side effects? Like, is, is there something wrong in that? Or what should someone do?
0: So, um, that's, that's a good question. And a lot of people have this question, right? O- oftentimes, you'll heal, you're going to hear people say that, you know, you know, why do you follow a madhab? We were commanded in the Quran to follow Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to follow the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Right? That say, oh Muhammad, to the people that if you love Allah, right, then follow me. Yuhbibkum Allah, Allah will love you back. Uh, so. The one thing that we need to understand before moving forward is that following a madhab does not deny the fact that you're following the Quran and Sunnah. Right. So that's basically that's how we're gonna preface right this uh, this argument here. That following a madhab does not contradict, does not deny the fact that you're following the Quran and Sunnah. Now, what do I mean by that? The four great Imams that are followed today throughout the entire world, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi'i, Imam Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with them all. Um, their methodologies of fiqh came approximately a 100 years after the Qur'an and the Sunnah were already established. So therefore, they weren't introducing anything new in the sense that they weren't introducing new uh issues to the community at their time rather the first thing their first and their initial goal in society was to be able to navigate the the different issues and the different uh, nuances of sharia of the sacred law and i'll give you an example right that on multiple occasions the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he led the sahaba in prayer right so uh, if it was difficult during the meccan era for 10 years in medina of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he led the sahaba in salah now despite the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam leading the sahaba in salah for 10 years you're still going to find a dispute among the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, with regards to what exactly one Salah must consist of. Meaning, you're going to hear narrations of certain companions saying that I was performing Salah behind the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he lifted his hands before he went into Ruku. Sayyidina Abdullah bin Omar. You're going to see companions that mention that I saw the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam performing Salah and he did not lift his hands before going into ruku. He lifted his hands at the beginning of Salah and that's it. Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas. So we have these conflicting narrations. So now how is the average person supposed to navigate something like this? Meaning are we to say that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did or did not lift his hands before going into ruku? What should a person do? Now both things are things that we believe are proven from the sunnah. These are things that are proven from the tradition of Rasulullah wasallam. But now how does the average person, the average Muslim, how are they supposed to tackle an issue like this? So what the madhabs do is they give a person a more, you could say it gives that person tunnel-like vision of what the Qur'an and sunnah is asking them to do. Otherwise the Quran and Sunnah is very vast. On different occasions the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he did different things. You have incidents that occurred every single day and despite occurring every single day the Sahaba still had a difference in opinion of what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam actually did. For example, the lifting of the hands before going into Ruku. The solar eclipse salah happened once in the entire life of Rasulullah Sallallahu only once. But even with regards to that, there is a tremendous amount of uh, discourse. That how many times did the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam go into Ruku during the Solar Eclipse Salah? So Aisha Siddiqah radiallahu ta'ala anha, she said that the Prophet Sallallahu he uh, went into Ruku twice during that one Salah. So each Raka'ah, he would go into Ruku twice. But that's not something that we normally do. Some of the companions who were standing right at the front, with the Prophet ﷺ, they said that no, it was just one very super long uh, ruku that the Prophet ﷺ performed. So now this was an occurrence that, this was a once in a lifetime occurrence. It only happened once in the Prophet ﷺ's lifetime. So even an issue like this, right, there's a tremendous amount of dispute. The Prophet performed the Hajj once in his entire life. But you're going to see companions say, Sayyidina Abdullah bin Omar says, The Prophet ﷺ, I heard him say, Labbaik the moment he put on his Ihram. Sayyidina so Abdullah bin Mas'ud will say things like, No, I saw the Prophet saying Labbaik after he performed the turaqa after putting on the Ihram. Or oh, when did the Prophet stop saying the Ihram? When did the Prophet do this? So there's different narrations uh, that the Prophet with regards to his actions, what he actually did, on different occasions what he actually said. So there's differences with regards to this. So therefore, if we were to leave leave it just to the average person, or if we were to leave it just at that, that follow the Quran and Sunnah, a person would be confused. And I often tell people that following a madhab is actually making your life easier. It actually does. Why? Because you're not confused. That a person, you know, the average person, every single day they wake up in the morning, right? they go to work, uh, they have a bunch of responsibilities at work they come back home they have responsibilities at home they have wife, children how is that person supposed to tackle an issue that arises within their life? like that person for example they started a salah and they kind of messed up so now what is that person supposed to do that okay you know I have to go home today in the evening and I need to I need to crack open Sahih al-Bukhari and I need to read uh, what am I supposed to do? what did the Prophet do when he made a mistake like this? you may not even find a narration Be like oh you know uh, something like this happened today And I, I need to go home And I need to open my translation of the Holy Quran to see You know, what am I supposed to do Or I'm going to go home and I'm going to Google it Or on my way home I'm going to Google it Right, that's right. That's the most convenient way today right? But the, the issue is that A person doesn't need to go through this hassle A person has a madhab A plan laid out for them They don't need to wake up every single morning and worry that oh today am I going to act upon the hadith that says you lift your hands before going into ruku or am I going to act upon the hadith that says you don't? Am I going to recite Surah Fatiha behind the Imam or am I going to stay quiet and listen to the Imam? Am I going to say my Bismillah out loud or am I not going to say Bismillah out loud? Am I going to eat uh, all the seafood in the world or am I going to stick to just fish? Right so these are issues that arise every single day so that if a person sticks to one opinion one madhab or even not even that if a person sticks to one scholar that anytime i face an issue i'm going to ask that guy i'm going to ask him if that, if you have that one go to scholar in your life it will make your life easy anything happens you just dial that scholar up and you ask them hey this is what happened what am i supposed to do so now you have a clear cut vision of what islam wants from you and you have a, and, and it's very easy as opposed to every single time you have an issue you're going to go and try finding the answer on your own right because what well, we all know right sometimes you know we get sick so you go on google and be like you know you type in your symptoms right and we know how terrible that can be it can be from just oh it's nothing it's a migraine to you have cancer <laughs> right so diagnosing yourself is never a good idea right? a person right should go to a doctor right these are the symptoms this is what i'm suffering from and the doctor will give you, right, the best advice. Same thing with regards to Islam and Sharia. Not everyone is well equipped to navigate the nuances of, uh, of Sharia. So therefore, right, this makes it easier for a person. Right? So that's just a bit uh, on that topic.
1: So you said some people aren't well equipped to, um, you know, us hmm. themselves, right? <laughs> so, um, what qualified the the Imams back in, I think it was like the 9th, 8th century, what qualified them to
0: develop their own methods. hmm So mashallah is a good question. So the what we need to understand so the, the first thing that we need to understand is that um in the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam this is not something that was going on during that time. Meaning we never had this issue of this opinion and that opinion in the time of Rasulullah. Why? In the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, if something happened, who would you ask? The Prophet. It was as simple as that. Islam was more or less limited to Medina Munawara, and to be honest, Medina Munawara was not that big. But if you were to kind of um, estimate how big Medina Munawara was at, at at that time. The size of the entire Masjid Nabawi today was approximately the size of Medina Munawara at that time. That's how big Medina was. That's the entire Medina, just the size of the Masjid today, right? Because uh, Bakir, the the uh, the cemetery was outside of of the uh, of the of the city of the Prophet, but now it's right outside the Masjid. It's within the city, right? But that once upon a time that was outside of the city, right? Aisha's house, right, is within the the Masjid. Um, uh, all of the other wives of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, their house is inside the masjid, the Sahaba, their houses are inside the masjid. So, Madinah was quite small. You didn't need to worry. If something happened, you just go to the door of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you knock on his door, you wait for him to come out, you go to the masjid, you'll find Rasulullah there. You ask him your question. It's that easy. After the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam's demise... So that's when things started getting a bit more complicated. The Prophet ﷺ was no longer around. But they still had that figure. They still had that one figure. For example, as long as the the Khilafah, the Caliphate continued, you had the khalifa. You have an issue, you go ask Abu Bakr. You have an issue, you ask Umar, you ask Uthman, you ask Ali. But the issue that arose was more around the time of Umar ibn al-Khattab when Islam spread very far. Right. during the the caliphate of umar ibn al-khattab uh, th- they conquered all the way until china they conquered um, all the way until muslim spain muslim spain was conquered after that uh, they conquered egypt they conquered parts of africa so all of these areas were conquered during the caliphate of umar ibn al-khattab so therefore now obviously every single time an issue arises you can't ask umar umar is not there you can't just call umar right there's no there're no there're no phones so now Sayyidina Umar al-Khattab has a very famous sermon that he delivered when he became the Khalifa. He said that anyone that has a question, anyone that has a question with regards to wealth, meaning if somebody wants money, if somebody wants financial assistance, then come to me. I'm the Khalifa. Right? I have access to the Baytul Mal, to the to, to the treasury of, of, of the, of the Khilafah, Right, You can ask me. If someone has a question about how to recite something in the Holy Qur'an, he goes, then you go ask Ubayy ibn Kab. He goes, he'll give you the answer. Trust whatever Ubay says. If someone has a question about inheritance, someone in their family passed away and they want to know right, how much inheritance, how they should distribute their inheritance, you go ask Zayd ibn Thabit. If someone has a question about any other matter of fiqh, you ask Muad ibn Jabal. So even... And then even during the time of Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Ibn Qayyim, he mentions this. He said that Umar ibn Khattab one day he announces to the people, he says, look, anyone that has an issue wherein there's is a dispute, he says, And there's no hadith from the Prophet He goes and the fatwa is according to Whatever Abu Bakr says That's the final verdict You trust Abu Bakr Siddiq So there was an issue After the demise of Rasulullah That what Should a person do But it wasn't that big of a deal Because the Sahaba were still around So during the first 30 years after the Prophet's demise, majority of the Sahaba were still alive. It's only after the Khilafa ended, after Sayyidina Ali bin Abi Talib's reign as the Khalifa, after third, the 30th year after Hijrah, that majority of the Sahaba right, they started passing away. Right, between, that, between 30 and 60 Hijri is when uh, majority of the Sahaba began to pass away. And then after 60 Hijri was only the younger companions of the Prophet ﷺ. Right, the four uh, the, the, the four Abdullah's uh, And uh, Sayyidina Anas bin Malik And some of them They were the only ones that were alive So at that time At that time Now there was a need There was a need to develop A way For the average person To navigate their lives According to Sharia According to the sacred law So Abu Hanifa did not come along all the way until right around 80 Hijri 80 so that so that's that's 70 years after Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam passed away Imam Malik like 30 years after that Shafi'i was born according to some narration the day Abu Hanifa passed away Imam Ahmad came even after that Right, so, they were not that close to the era of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi Wasallam. The closest to the era of Rasulullah was Abu Hanifa, who saw some of the Sahaba, so he was a tabi'i. None of the other ones were. So now, the question arises that, you know, what made them qualified? And were they the most qualified people? So the answer is yes and no. So there were many people during that era that were highly qualified. They could have started their own madhabs. Some of them did. They didn't live on Others just didn't try So it's mentioned that during Imam Abu Hanifa's time Some of the great uh, Muhaddithin Some of the great scholars of Hadith Were still alive during that time Sayyidina Sufyan al-Thawri Sufyan ibn Uyayna So prominent and famous names during that time One of my teachers um He he told us that during the time of Abu Hanifa, it wasn't that Abu Hanifa was the smartest man at that time. He says that there were jurists alive during that time who had an equal or m- maybe even more, uh, or, or a higher or better grasp of Sharia than Abu Hanifa. He says, So what made Abu Hanifa so great? Why did Abu Hanifa's Madhab live on? Why didn't anybody else's? Because it was his students. It was the students of Abu Hanifa that carried on his legacy. That's why his madhab continued. It's mentioned by Imam Malik. Imam Malik Rahmatullahi alayh during his era. Right, again, there were many prominent he lived in Medina Munawara. That was a very difficult place to, to to be like the brightest crayon in the box. Right. That's the, like that's Medina, right? You're living in the Prophet City. Right? There were great scholars in Medina Munawara. So Imam Malik, how did he begin to shine? So again, it was his students. They were greater scholars than Malik during his era. Laith ibn Sa'ad, right? They were great scholars. But their madhabs, their ideology did not live on. Shafi'i is the exact same. Imam Ahmad is the exact same. But what made them qualified? It was their grasp. It was their grasp over the sacred sciences. Right? And let me give you an example Imam Malik. According to some uh, historians Malik met Abu Hanifa according to some historians. He never met him, but he heard about him So when Imam Malik what he had to say about Abu Hanifa was amazing He said that Abu Hanifa is such a man that if he were to point at a wooden pillar and try convincing you that it was made of gold He'd be able to convince you even though you knew it wasn't made of gold because He was that convincing in his arguments the very famous saying, "La yufta wa Malikun fil Madina," that a fatwa cannot be given while Malik is sitting in Medina Munawwara. Right? The very famous Shafi'i scholars narrate this story that while Malik was alive, no one had the audacity to issue a verdict, uh, and everyone went back to Malik. Questions from all over the, uh, the 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 Muslim world, right, would come to Malik. Where it's actually funny and that once somebody brought like 50, 50 odd number of questions to Imam Malik and Imam Malik he only answered like four of them for 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 like 40 plus questions he just said la adri I don't know so they're all like oh you know we traveled from like Egypt we traveled from like Iraq right all the way down here like how are you telling us you don't know what are we going to tell our people he goes yeah go tell them Malik said he doesn't know it's okay right so they were they were very humble people. But at the same time, there were some of the brightest minds that ever walked upon the face of this earth. The Prophet ﷺ, during his sermon in Hajjatul Wada, the farewell Hajj, the Prophet he told the Sahaba something. He said that whatever I'm telling you here today, and whatever you have gathered from me, he says, pass this on to the next generation. He goes, because it's very possible that you pass it on to people in the future who have a deeper understanding than you, he was talking to the Sahaba that it's possible you pass on these narrations you pass on the Quran and Sunnah to people that have a better understanding than you, the people that heard it from uh, the Prophet himself, so the Prophet told the Sahaba this, this is an authentic narration that it's very, it's highly likely that the people that you pass this legacy on to they'll dive deeper into it they may appreciate it so much that they're gonna make more of it than than, than you. Again, the Prophet was not uh, degrading the Sahaba, but the Prophet sallallahu alaihi was trying to tell the Sahaba that you know they might think of it uh, and they might look at these ahadith and these narrations in a different lens. So it, it actually takes a lot. Uh, a lot of reading it takes a lot of um uh, from a person to actually do so this is referred to as ijtihad right to to deduce your own rulings Right? how does a person do that right meaning if we were to give a person a, co- a copy of the holy quran and for example all like 30000 40000 narration the prophet sallallahu alaihi ever narrated if we were to give people copies of these books and be like, okay, here, you know, take this and figure out how to perform a turaqah salah. Right? No one can do it. It's almost impossible. Whether right? here, you know, use the Quran and explain to me when the time is. It's almost impossible. Right, okay, crack open al Bukhari and explain to me right how you how you're supposed to perform a Turaqah salah. You won't. You won't be able to the only place you'll find like detail with regards to every single issue or the framework that will allow you to move on and develop new rulings as advancements occur right, both in science and in the world in general he says is if you follow a madhab so the issue with the scholars of the past the issue of the scho- with the scholars of the past was that not every single one of them was worried of uh, you know about creating a madhab some of them were but right it's through the divine decree of allah subhanahu wa taala that their madhabs didn't live on right so it's not that it could have only been these four and nobody else there could have been more there were more there were scholars who were just that great but again at the end of the day it's a coincidence that we just have four what made them that great? At the end of the day, they were scholars that had great abilities. But only these four were granted that level of acceptance that their madhabs and their ideologies lived on. Right, So that's uh, the cold-hearted truth. Right, That there were great scholars. Right? But at the end of the day, it's up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So yeah.
1: if all the madhabs are right, wouldn't I be allowed to mix and match? Like you know. Like for example, like say I'm I'm doing wudu, right? And
2: say I'm at work, I have to take off my socks and perform my wudu, but the person next to me, he just does musa over his feet.
0: So yeah. So this so this is a whole separate issue now. That um so the Arabic term for following a madhab is the word taqleed Right. So that, that that's the word for following a madhab, Taqleed Right, taqlid literally means to blindly follow. That's the literal meaning. So, you actually don't care about what's more right and what's what's wrong. You're actually just blindly following one person, whatever they say goes. That's what you're doing. Um, the issue of picking and choosing is tied into an, uh, something else, which is referred to as Taqlid shaksi. following just one madhab. Now, <clears throat> why is there so much... Uh, importance given and so much emphasis put on just following one madhab. so one of the great uh, scholars from the Indian subcontinent Maulana Ashraf Ali Thanwe uh, he mentions that look he says at the end of the day at the end of the day if a person begins to pick and choose every single time they're faced with an issue he says what what will what will the human, or what will the person choose? By nature, a human is inclined towards that which is easier. So every single time, you're just going to pick the easier option. You know, as opposed to taking my socks off, I could just keep them on. You know, this imam says that I can eat this. So maybe I should just eat it. You know, that imam says that, you know, I don't have to pray with her it's not wajib i'm not giving anyone any ideas yeah but <laughs> right, if you're if you're hanafi then you got to pray right so right so again so all of this what it what it creates is it it creates um what the scholars refer to as hawa. you're not following your desires you're not following a your madhab you're following your desires whatever you want that's what you're following and there's a very famous scholar from Egypt, right, who passed away in the last century, um, who had a book. He called that book, uh, Allah Ladiniyya. He said that not following a Madhab, one specific Madhab, will make that person an atheist. Now, right, when a person reads that title, be like, how, how did he make the conclusion that a person who just decides to wipe their socks? Or decided to you know go to Red Lobster, right? How did that person end up an atheist? So he says because he says what happened with the previous nations? How come they moved so far away from their religions? He goes because their hawa, their their carnal desires, they kind of crept in. So the Christians, what ended up happening with them? Every single thing that they found too difficult within the Bible, they rejected, and over time they changed that's exactly what the jews did as well right there's actually incidents that uh, of this occurring during the time of rasulullah sallallahu wasallam of the jews doing this right when the Torah was revealed and given to musa alayhi salatu musa alayhi salatu took 70 people with him to receive the Torah. when they came back and the rest of bani israel asked them that hey what did allah say He said, oh, Allah said that this is the book that you're supposed to follow. But if there's something that's too difficult, then you can just let it go. It's okay. And that's when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Jibreel. He held the mountain on top of them and he made them them seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But long story short, a person is inclined towards ease. No one's going to pick something that's difficult. So if we get into this habit of picking and choosing then that's what's going to end up happening. However, Ma Thani says one other thing. He says, if, he says, I feel that it's so far-fetched, but he goes, if, if someone decides to act upon a hadith, for the with the sole intention of acting upon the sunnah, they're not doing it for ease, they're not doing it because that's the easier way out Or that's just more convenient for them They're doing it because they want to implement the sunnah He says then kudos to that person Mubarak to that person That's amazing That person can do it Even if that person doesn't stick to one madhab It's okay But he says he says this is, this is quite rare To keep your desires aside And to act upon things solely because they are proven from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa You're acting upon this because it's a hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Because if somebody out of sheer desire to act upon the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam decides to pick and choose, then that's okay. But that he goes but that means you need to be able to put your hand on your heart and say I'm doing this because of my zeal for acting upon the Sunnah. Because if someone can do that, he goes and that person is allowed. It's actually mentioned that during um, uh, Maulana Muhammad Zakiria Kandalwi's stay, when he was living in uh, uh, in Mazarulum Saharanpur in India, it's mentioned that uh, some uh, students were brought to him, Salafi students, students that did not follow a madhab. So some some other students they found out that these students don't follow a madhab and and uh, they just act upon you know whatever they feel is more right, and they pick and choose a hadith and things like this. So he. Uh, so some other students, they complained that, you know, there are some students that sit in your dars, they sit in your lesson and they are they actually don't follow a madhab Right? They're not Hanafi, they're not Maliki, they're not Shafi, they're not, they're not Hanbali, they're, they're nothing. So, they thought that Sheikh Zakaria was going to like kick him out of like his dars or something like that. But Sheikh Zakaria gave a very, very amazing response. He said that, look, he says, I have no reason he says, I have no reason to doubt their intentions. He says, if their intention is to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by walking in the footsteps of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and that's the way that they're choosing to do it, he goes, and I'm not going to stop them. He goes, even if they're not sticking to one madhab, it's okay. He goes, if so again, he's basically echoing the same words of Maha That if they are... Pure and sincere in their intention of following the Sunnah and that's why they're doing it then I won't stop them I won't say that you have to follow a madhab the, For that person following the Sunnah is okay following the, the Quran and Hadith is okay again. It's tremendously difficult Right? It's tremendously difficult even for a qualified scholar. It's difficult But at the end of the day he goes if they're if they're sincere in doing so he wasn't that's okay and the issue is that we believe that this um, uh, the following one madhab is a new uh, occurrence. Like this is something that's new, newly. It's like an innovation. It's not, right? And I'll, I'll give you a hadith of why it's not. It's mentioned that uh, after the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam's demise. Some of the, some people from Medina Munawwara, they went to perform Hajj one year. And what ended up happening was that there was a woman whose menstrual cycle began before she can perform the final farewell tawaf before going home. Right, so there's three tawaf in Hajj. One at the beginning, one somewhat in the middle which is Fard, and then one tawaf that you perform which is wajib, which you perform right before you leave. It's called tawaf al-wada, the farewell tawaf. It's basically like your goodbyes to the to the Kaaba. So, this woman, she entered the state of menstruation right before the farewell tawaf. So now the issue occurred that, okay, if we were to wait for her, we be waiting like 7, 8, maybe 10 days for menstruation to end. And for this woman to become pure for menstruation And then she can do tawaf And then we can go home right? That, that would cause a hindrance to everyone So what they did was They went to Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas Who was living in Makkah Mukarram at that, at that time So they asked Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas This hadith is mentioned in Sahih bukhari They asked Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas What are we supposed to do? She wasn't able to perform the farewell tawaf And everybody else is ready to go home Can she leave without doing it? Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas said yes. He said, Tanfir, she can leave. Now, this is the funny part. All of these people were from Medina Munawara. And they already knew the answer. They already asked the same question to Zaid ibn Thabit who was sitting in Medina Munawara. And Zaid ibn Thabit said, She can't leave. You sit there and you wait. Someone should stay with her. Someone should stay with her. Until she becomes pure from menstruation, she will then perform the tawaf, and then you leave. This is what Zayd ibn Thabit said. So what did they say? They said that we will not take your opinion, wa nada'u kawla Zayd, and we're not gonna leave the opinion of Zayd. Rather, we're gonna stick to Zayd bin Thabit's opinion, because he's our mufti. He's the one that we follow. So they stuck to following just Zayd ibn Thabit, even though they just asked Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas the Masala. They just asked him. To his face. Now to his face they're telling him we're not going to listen to you because your opinion contradicts Zaid ibn Thabit's opinion. And we were told to follow Zaid ibn Thabit. So we don't care what you have to say. So Abdullah ibn Abbas said alright fine. He didn't argue with them. Right. So one of the commentators of Bukhari said that look. Ibn Abbas despite being such a great scholar. He's not telling them that, hey, how could you do something? I'm telling you that this is what I heard the Prophet say. And you're bringing ibn Thabit's opinion in front of me? You know, how come you're not following the Hadith and you're following ibn Thabit? He didn't say that. He said, okay, go back to Medina and confirm. They're like, how are we going to confirm? Go ask Ummu Sulaim. I remember that during the Prophet's time, Umm Sulaim, right? She faced the same issue. During the Farewell Hajj, she had she, she began her menstrual cycle before the Farewell Tawaf. Ask her what the Prophet told her to do. So they're like, okay. So they all left. They went back to Medina Munawarah. They asked Ummu Sulaim. They're like, Ummu Sulaim, what did the Prophet tell you to do when this happened to you in Hajj? She said, the Prophet told me to leave and not do the Farewell Tawaf. So then they told her the same thing. Oh, we're not going to listen to you. And, and leave Zaid ibn Thabit. We're going to follow Zayd ibn Thabit. So these guys are diehard Zayd ibn Thabit fans. <laughs> they follow Zayd ibn Thabit and that's it. Zayd ibn Thabit, that's it. So in the end, they went to Zayd ibn Thabit and they told him that we went to Ibn Abbas and he said this. But I remember you said this. We went to Umm Sulaim and she said this. But I remember you said this. So he's like, wait. If Umm Sulaim, the woman who faced the same issue during Rasulullah's time, if she's telling you the Prophet didn't let her go, then that's probably the correct opinion. So he retracted from his previous statement and he said that I adopt the opinion of Ibn Abbas and Umm Sulaim, whatever they say. And then they're like, okay, because you said so. They still, they're like, oh, because you said that you're retracting, then we're okay now. Okay, that's what we're going to do from now on. So they stuck to them. Right? Somebody came to Sayyidina Abu Musa Ash'ari ta'ala anhu, Another incident Somebody came to Abu Musa Ash'ari ta'ala And they asked him a question about inheritance They're like somebody passed away And that person Left behind a daughter A granddaughter and a sister How do we distribute the inheritance? So Sayyidina Abu Musa Ash'ari ta'ala anhu, He's like Hmm okay Uh, you give half of the inheritance to the daughter and you give half of the inheritance to the sister that's what he said so then Abdullah bin Masood heard he's like what? he goes no that's not what the prophet said the prophet said you give half to the daughter you give one sixth to the granddaughter and the rest you give it to the sister So Abu Musa ta'ala is like, hmm, it makes sense. He then told everyone, he said, لا تسألوني ما دام هذا الحبر فيكم That never ask me a question as long as this scholar is sitting among you. Meaning he imposed upon every single person, you just follow what Ibn Mas'ud says, nobody else. And things like this happened all the time. Right, that every single person, right? I just mentioned to you that Sayyidina Umar Al-Khattab, when Abu Bakr became the Khalifa, he said that anywhere there's a dis- there's a disagreement, there's a dispute, there's no Hadith, or there's or there's a confliction in the narrations, we go according to whatever Abu Bakr Siddiq says. So therefore, this is something that was present even during the era of the Sahaba. Even they stuck to just following one person at a time. Because if a person follows multiple people, then one of two things will happen: either you're going to end up following whatever is easier, most likely, or you're just going to be a tremendously confused person all the time, right? You're never, you're never going to know what to do, right? The whole purpose of a madhab is it makes your life easier. If you're still right picking and choosing and trying to find out what everybody else is saying, you know, okay, this is what Abu Hanifa said, but what did Malik say? Hmm. Right? What did Imam Shafi'i say? What did Imam Good luck with Ibn Right? But like it's just gonna make your life difficult right so that's that's a bit about right the whole issue of following one person versus following multiple people right? yeah i so hope that answered the question
2: <laughs> yeah, better, better. yeah so at the end it's better to just stick to one one
0: teacher yeah they, they even say within one madhab you should stick to one scholar because even then right uh, uh, Maharaj Shavali he mentions that uh, during, uh, during his lifetime, so many people would come to him and ask questions. And when they would not like the answer that he gave them, they'd go ask someone else. Meaning they just keep going around fatwa shopping. They'd ask this guy. He gave a, a strict answer. So like, oh, you know, on this guy. We're going to go ask that guy. <laughs> so they go ask that guy. And then they go ask somebody else. Until they find whatever... They want. It's basically the same thing. Right? You're just following your desires. You're just gonna go look for the one mufti, right, who's gonna give you the the green light. Yeah, I don't wanna take his name. He lives in Birmingham. Right, he'll give you the he'll give you the green light all the time. Right, so don't do that. Right, stick to one person that you feel is someone that's up to date, someone that has a good grasp, right over. Um, Islamic academia, that person is a God-fearing person. Right? Stick to that person. Someone that you can resonate with. It doesn't have to be someone overseas, right? It doesn't have to be someone in some other country in some in the Arab world. It could be your local, it could be Mala Ahmad right there, right? Someone that you can resonate, someone that, that, that you can uh, see eye-to-eye with and you trust that person. right? you trust that I can put my deen in this person's hands and I will not go astray. I'll be okay. right? you trust that person you, and you stick to that person and it makes your life easier. That anytime you have an issue, you ask that person. And whatever they are going to tell me, it's going to be okay. Because to be honest, let me tell you something. Another benefit of following people is that you're never going to be blamed. The blame is always on them. Sayyidina Imam Malik, somebody asked him a question. And that person, before Sayyidina Imam Malik asked him the question, Malik asked him that, where are you coming from? So he goes, I'm coming from Egypt. So he goes, are there no scholars in Egypt? So he's like, there are, but I heard so much about you. You know, Malik's such a great uh, scholar. You know, Malik refused to give him the answer. This man came all the way from Egypt to Medina Munawara. And Malik said, go home. I'm not giving the answer. So after he left, his students asked, like, did you not know the answer? Like, we know the answer. So he goes, no, I knew the answer. But tomorrow, let's say for example, tomorrow my opinion changes. Who's going to go tell that guy that my opinion changed? He's going to use my back on the day of judgment to get into paradise and I'm going to fall into Jahannam. He goes, I can't, I, I can't live with that. Right, I can't live with that. But what do you understand? right? That it's never, you're never going to be blamed if you're just following someone else. The blame is on them. If they gave you the wrong advice and you live your life, according to that it's their fault it's not your fault right we, we we believe that on the day of judgment right that person will not be held accountable because that person didn't know better they, they were they, they were not qualified to make that decision on their own so they asked somebody that they thought was qualified and that person gave them the wrong advice right so it's actually safer for you as well it's safer right it's safer for me if i just follow Buharifa. <laughs> right why because uh, he said so Right, it's him right. Like, it wasn't me. It was him right so on the on the on the day of journey You can just played the blame game like it wasn't me It was him right, you know punish him right? <laughs> May Allah, I, I, we believe that's not gonna happen right, but right you, that that's that's how it will go down right so it's much It's, it's, it's better for you. So it's easier Safer in this world than the hereafter right and it'll save you a bunch of time Yeah so those are like just some of the logical reasons of why you should follow one madhab. Yeah,
1: you like banged out all my questions <laughs> I have. <left laughs> okay, um, how do I pick which madhab to follow? Hmm. Like that? That's
0: a good question. So, to be honest, to be honest, the reality of the matter is, each and every single one of us just end up following the madhab that they were born into. I was born Hanafi. That's why I am Hanafi today. Seldom does a person change their madhab. Can you change your madhab? So the answer is yes. But there has to be a good reason for it. And again, like, in order to change your madhab, you need to be able, you need to be qualified to make that decision. Now, what makes you qualified to make that decision? You basically need to read up on both madhabs and be able to come to the conclusion that this madhab is more correct than this madhab. To be honest, by the time you end up reading both madhabs, you'll probably be dead. (laughs) You won't live to see the day where you can properly say that I've, or, or where you can say that I have adequately researched both madhabs and I feel that this one is more correct. You won't live to see the day. Right? I won't live to see the day. All right. I've, I've been right studying the Hanafi Madhab right ever since right for, for like 12 13 years now I've probably only read like I don't know like one one thousandth of the Madhab. like it's so vast right each and every single one of them right so vast it's almost impossible for a person right to 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 dive that deep into every single issue and be able to um, uh, say that this madhab is more correct than this madhab. However, it did happen, right? These things have happened. Uh, it's actually um, quite famously mentioned in uh, in our, um, our madrasas that Imam Tahawi, right? Imam Tahawi, is one of the greatest Hanafi scholars. Passed away three hundred twenty one Hijri. Uh, He was born a Shafi'i. His uncle was Shafi'i's student. A direct student of Imam Shafi'i. So Imam Tahawi used to go to the gathering of his uncle. So obviously his uncle was Imam Shafi'i's student. So he was Shafi'i. So he was like teaching him Shafi'i fiqh. But Imam Tahawi ended up leaving the Shafi'i madhab, And he ended up becoming Hanafi. And that's like our biggest flex on the Shafi'i's, right? That look, this guy, such a great Imam, left your madhab and joined ours. And why he and when when he was asked why, he said that I used to see my uncle, that anytime he couldn't find the answer to something within Shafi'i books, he would look in the Hanafi books. So I'm like, hey, let me go to the place that he's always looking. So then one of the Hanafi scholars, right, I forget his name at the moment, but he visited that same uh, that same area that he was living in and then he started benefiting from his works and then later on he changed his madhab and then he became one of the most notable figures within Hanafi jurisprudence and Hanafi, Hanafi fiqh I know I know a Gujarati guy uh, who became Shafi'i so the, he he made the opposite transition <laughs> right so he went and then he studied uh, uh, under Mufitaha Karan in Cape Town right one of Arguably, he just passed away two years ago. One of the the greatest uh, English speaking Shafi'i scholars, right, that we've uh, ever right, seen. Uh, so he studied under him, and then he 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 adopted another madhab. He, he he became Shafi'i. He's like the one Gujarati guy who you're gonna see lifting his hands before he goes into ruku, right? Um, uh, Sheikh Hamza Makbul, right, from uh, the states. Uh, he became Maliki and his and we asked him his story like oh why did you change from being hanafi being he, he, he's pakistani uh, so he he was born hanafi but then he became uh, maliki so we asked him why he says that to be honest he goes that i started studying so he, he first he went to university and everything so he started studying um, uh, the sacred uh, sciences quran and sunnah at a very uh, old old age so he was already like late 20s when he started so the madrasa that he wanted to enroll in in pakistan had a rule that you had to be under the age of 25 in order to enroll here so they they turned him away so when they turned him away he was so angry he's like you know how could these people not like you know how, how can they turn me away like i came all the way from america right here to study and they're like turning me away so long story short he ended up in mauritania in africa and he started studying there and and all of the scholars there are maliki so he ended up becoming Maliki because he was rejected from a Hanafi madrasa, and then he went to uh, and studied under Maliki scholars, and then he became Maliki, right? So like everyone's um, story of how they converted to another madhab is always different. Um, but honestly and truthfully speaking, like there there are scholars right who dedicated their entire lives and they still did not feel that they themselves were worthy of making that transition, right? I'll give you one example. Of a, uh, a scholar from the Indian subcontinent, Marana Shah Kashmiri. Now, just to give you a, a bit of an, uh, a glimpse of like what or who Kashmiri was, Kashmiri was basic, he basically had like photogenic memory. Like this man was amazing, right? He could see, and this is, this is he himself speaking. He said that I could see, I could like read. He goes, I can read and just glimpse at a page. Once, And I'll remember it for at least 25 years. He goes, and if I go over it a few times, he goes that I can swear by Allah it will not fade from my memory for at least 40 years. He used to quote things. The page number, the line number, and everything off the top of his head. Like huge encyclopedias, he used to quote. But this was amazing. Like, there's one funny story I also mentioned about him. That he was so... Like, his memory was so strong that he used to walk around with his fingers in his ears all the time. Why? Because the area that he used to live in was highly, was densely populated with Hindus. So they used to be like playing their music. So he didn't want to listen because he, was, he would accidentally memorize the lyrics if he were to listen to them. Because his memory was that amazing. He'd listen to it once and then he'd be like playing in his head. So he didn't want that. So he used to walk around like this. He used to walk around like this. It's mentioned that one day he was traveling. Wait, do I have time?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So it was mentioned that one day he was, he was traveling on a train. This was during uh, British occupied India. So he, he, so he was going somewhere on a train and there was a British woman sitting across from him. And she got into an argument with a British man. So obviously they were speaking in English. And this like old cha-cha looking guy is sitting there, you know, just minding his own business. But he was the witness as to everything that that went down, everything that transpired there. So the cops came and they asked him, like, you know, do you know you know, what happened? So he basically told them in Urdu, he was like, oh, they were speaking in English. I don't know English, but I can relate everything that I heard. They're like, how, how can you do that? He goes, because I remember everything that they said. Like I can just I, I can like I can I can just you know uh, reword everything I, I can I can like regurgitate everything that they just said, even though I don't know English. Right, so he he, so he was that great. He says towards the end of his life, he says that I have my own opinions for everything. He goes. He goes I have my own opinion when it comes to like different like um uh rules of Arabic grammar. He goes I have different uh takes on like certain issues in like Arabic rhetoric. He goes I have different isu- I have different takes on everything. He goes but the one thing that I fail I fail to hold my own ideas on is fic. Because I find it too difficult to maintain and to establish my own ideas and not Abide by a madhab, and not follow a madhab because I find it's too difficult. That, that's some, some, somebody like him saying that, right? That he he memorized more than like like fifty thousand, like hundred thousand versions of different ahadith. Like he was amazing, right? Like nobody's ever seen anyone right with a memory like like Anwar Shah. But now he's saying that, like you know, I have my own like two cents on like everything except for fic he goes in Fiq. i just follow the Madhab because i find it's too difficult right so even he like felt that it was too difficult right to like change the Madhab and to adopt something else
1: okay um i have two more questions okay um this one wasn't related at all to what you just said okay just heads up so my history professor said something mind-blowing to me the other day so he said um that the Hanafi might have, looked at the Quran and said that wine is banned. But God didn't ban beer. So, uh, therefore, it was permissible, right? Is there any basis to that?
0: So, not not 100% true. So, yeah, with, uh, within Hanafi jurisprudence itself, <coughs> alcohol is divided into two different categories. The alcohol that is discussed within the Holy Quran is is alcohol that is uh, made from grapes or or dates. So, the wine that is mentioned in the Holy Qur'an is date wine or grape wine. Uh, because that's what they had at that time, in that era. Right? That's the only type of wine that they used to drink. So, anything else technically, any other type of alcohol is not clearly prohibited in the Holy Qur'an but that's where we bring the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in and to be honest here's where everyone and all of the other madhabs will come running to Abu Hanifa for this one issue Abu Hanifa is the most lenient when it comes to the issue of alcohol now again he's not saying that you can go you know to the beer store and then every you know Friday evening and crack open a cold one with the boys (laughs) he's not saying that but he's saying that if a person consumes alcohol in number 1 non-intoxicating amounts number number 1 number 2 it's not just a fling or for like enjoyment then that is permissible provided it is not grape wine or date wine now why does that why does that help us Every single one of us here probably drinks ice caps. Yeah? Ice caps have ethanol. Ethanol is alcohol. Every single one of us. Now if now Imam Shafi'i Imam Malik one of Abu Hanifa's students himself Imam Muhammad believes that the same rule that applies to grape wine and date wine applies also to any other type of alcohol. So even a drop is not allowed imam abu hanifa says you no know, the rules are different so only within the the fiqh of abu hanifa his opinion and one of his students qazi abu yusuf their opinion states right that if a person consumes it in non intoxicating amounts and their uh uh, uh th- their um, reason for drinking it is not just like you know to like get drunk or like for enjoyment then that's okay there's so many things that we consume that have alcohol Right, alcohol is a preservative right that there's so many things they get you know, just to like uh, Lengthen the, the 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 shelf life of so many of these things that so many of these products that we have There's alcohol and by Canadian law and by the standards uh, here in North America if the if something has a trace bit Of an ingredient by law. They don't have to declare it. They don't have to mention it So Sometimes something may have a trace bit of alcohol. You won't even know Oasis orange juice has alcohol I feel like I, but again like if you're Hanafi you're you're good yeah? yeah if you're following any other mother I feel sorry for you that I'm, I'm, I'm bringing all this but you know um, yeah just putting it out there right you guys can eat lobster right we can't right so I guess we're even but so this this also kind of ties into the fact that look it is it, actually good sometimes it's actually good that we have different opinions it gives us a certain amount of flexibility. It gives us a certain amount of flexibility. If something is far too difficult, if something becomes a common affliction, then the scholars, they generally try their best to create some sort of flexibility and ease within the ruling. So even scholars that do not follow the Hanafi madhab, now, when it comes to alcohol, they will issue the verdict according to Abu Hanifa's opinion. Why? Because they see that it's far too difficult for a person to abstain fully from anything that has any any trace bit of alcohol in our society is impossible. Right? Let me give you another example. That Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi holds a very uh, unique opinion. Uh, with regards to the whole issue on like transporting and giving someone something haram. Right? That if somebody, for example, works in like no-frills, and now you're bagging groceries, or like you're like scanning groceries, and now you're giving someone you know haram meat. Does that mean your income is unlawful because you just handed that guy some haram meat? Abu Hanifa will say no. He says... That if you live and you reside in a place where Muslims are in a minority, then most likely any job that you do, at some point in time, you're going to end up helping someone commit a sin. You're a cab driver. On a Friday night, most likely someone's going to end up in your cab trying to go to downtown, right? Hit up some club or something like that. Right? you are just an innocent person trying to make a side hustle or this is your side hustle Uber Eats. You end up like going to Burger King and delivering a burger to maybe even some Muslim guy. (laughs) (laughs) Are we going to say that all these people are now working unlawful job? Like for example, you're an IT guy and you like, you work for like various different, like various different contracts but like once like, your contract included like doing some like it work for an insurance company for um, i don't know like a, a mortgage broker or somebody that somebody somebody that deals with riba does that mean that your 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 income is unlawful no we're living in a society wherein we are dominated by non-muslims at some point in your career you're going to end up doing something that's probably going to aid someone's sin right so does that mean that all these jobs are haram and we can't, we can't, <laughs> next thing, like, we won't be able to work any job. Like, no one's safe. Like, no one. Um, Like, just, just think of it, like, you, you can't even be like a school and a, pu- uh, a a public school teacher. Right, because you could probably end up teaching them something that doesn't, in li- uh, that, that's, that's not in line with Islamic beliefs. So now? So like, how are you going to live within society? So Abu Hanifa, a man who lived in Kufa, Kufa was the vast majority of the population of some of the more remote villages of Kufa, they were non-Muslims. This is what Abu Hanifa, he understood the issue better than, for example, Malik, who was sitting in Medina Munawwara. Not, not a single non-Muslim in sight. Shafi'i who for the vast majority of his life, lived in Makkah Muqarama. Not a single kafir in sight. So obviously it's easy for them to say that, hey, no, you got to stay away. You can't do that. For them it's easier. A man like Abu Hanifa who saw that, oh no, on a regular basis, we have to deal with the disbelievers. So therefore, what do we got to do? Oh, we got to create some flexibility here. Not every single thing we can just, you know, call it, oh, it's haram, you can't do that. Because then, so many uh, different types of trade will be off the market like you can't do that right so so I, I don't know where we, where we went from the whole beer thing to, like, to but uh, right so it's good right a lot of times it's good right for example right I'll, I'll give another example that you know wh- why do we need so many different opinions it's good like again like unity does not necessarily mean everybody believes the same thing that's not what unity is unity just means that each and every single of uh, a w- single one of us can respect the other despite and in spite their differences that's what unity is so we can respect the shafii standing beside us li- lifting his hands before going into ruku we can respect the maliki not even tying his hands beside us we can respect everybody we believe that they're all correct we're going to we're gonna, we'll, we'll bump fists with the, every single one of them in jannah it's not like just the hanafis are going to jannah just the malikis are going to jannah no you'll even see some of the salafis in jannah right? you'll see them too Right? So, it's not that we claim that we're the only righteous people. Number two, so it makes your life easy. Right? How? Right? I just gave a few examples of how living in different societies, different Imams, because they face different circumstances, they were able to have a different outlook. They had a different amount or different levels of experience with regards to certain issues. So they were able to issue different verdicts. There was a very famous issue that arose in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, With regards to um, uh, domestic abuse Now, in Islam, we know that the the ability to issue divorce Is something that is solely within the hands of the husband Islam did not give the woman the ability to issue divorce Does that mean that she's stuck in an abusive marriage? No Right, there are various different ways of her To get out of an abusive marriage But one thing That stuck out To some of the scholars in the subcontinent Was that for A lot, a lot of the time What you need in order to dissolve a marriage To annul a marriage Is you need An actual Muslim qadi, a judge Which you will only find In a Muslim majority country You're not going to find it anywhere else So the Indian subcontinent faced this issue, so India in general, right, faced this issue that they had no Islamic legal system that they can just have, you know, a Muslim judge say that, okay, you know, this woman is living in this abusive relationship, you know, this can't go on any longer and he'll annul the marriage, he'll break off the marriage even if the husband does not agree with it. So the issue arose that for Muslims living in a non-Muslim country, There was basically no way out for a woman that's suffering an abusive relationship. So what's she supposed to do? So within the fiqh of Imam Malik, there is an issue that mentions that in the absence of an Islamic judge, in the absence of an Islamic judge, you can gather a group of Muslims. It's recommended that at least two of them be mufti. A group of Muslims two of them being Mufti and they can act as a substitute for the Muslim judge and they can annul the marriage this is something that's found only within the fiqh of Imam Malik none of the other three Imams believe in this but now living in India it was far too difficult for them to even think of the idea right the British just left at that at that moment they just left India so at that moment it was it was it was too far fetched for them to even think of establishing you know an Islamic legal system over there right the Muslims are in a minority right we we hear of stories of Muslims being oppressed in India and different countries like that all the time so how are they even supposed to do that so that was something that wasn't even like you know within you know miles of uh, of anything being possible so. Imam Malik he he uh, uh, he, he believes that a, a group of Muslims can annul the merit and they can act as a substitute so one of the uh, the scholars marshrita again he wrote a book wherein he compiled issues and he wrote issues passing the verdict according to Imam Malik his opinion even though the majority of India is Hanafi he was Hanafi too But he said that this is an issue that is too difficult to act upon Abu Hanifa's opinion anymore. It's too difficult. Malik held a more lenient opinion over here. And this is an issue that is not just, you know, something that one, two people are facing. This is a very, very large issue. So therefore, he he, he compiled the book. He sent it all across the subcontinent. He got all of the uh, of the scholars and the muftis from the subcontinent to uh, to sign off on it, and then he even sent it to Saudi Arabia. He got the Maliki scholars themselves to agree with whatever was written there because it was written according to Maliki fiqh. So he sent it to them too, and then now today, right in India and even over here, right in different in in different areas, right, we apply that same fiqh that was compiled within that book, even though it's not our madhab. Right, so there was there were times when the scholars did feel that their madhab was something that was outdated it could not be uh, applied anymore so what did they do they, they they came together and they said that it was too difficult to implement this is something that everybody's facing so we need to change uh, what the madhab says right so it did happen right so flex so like it, it's good like the, uh, the amount of disagreement that is there right it's not something that to you know to create you know disunity Rather, it's it's good, right? It, it it creates ease and flexibility for us. The yeah.
2: final question I would like to ask you is for one one to learn more about their madhab, right? What are some resources one can refer to, to better to better understand and learn?
0: Hmm. So <clears throat> so that would depend on which madhab that person follows. Uh, but what I would recommend uh, first that a person does is that there are books that are written that talk about our topic of discussion today right that uh, what is the the status what's the rule of following a madhab? so there's actually a book within the English language right it's a book written by uh, Mufti Taqi Uthmani right from uh, from uh, from Pakistan Uh, uh, translated into English as well uh, it's called the legal status of following a madhab. So in there, he, he 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 teaches us, and he tells us, and he gives us the reason as to why why follow a madhab, why stick to just one, and then he gives us right some insight and some reasons. Right, he brings examples from the past, and then he educates us with regards to that. Um, so that's 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 one thing that we should all try reading. Right? So the legal status of following a madhab. Right, so that's a good book. Right, it's, it's available in PDF online and everywhere. Uh, another thing is that uh, depending on which madhab you follow uh, And how much you know background knowledge you have with regards to that madhab Right uh, that, that it would depend on that as to where you're gonna start So for example within the Hanafi school right, a person right depending on how much knowledge they have How much they've studied in the past right, a person can start with a book like Ascent of Felicity, right, a very good book it starts from uh, basic um, uh, matters of Islamic creed, what a person should believe, to matters of purification, tahara, and then salah, and then zakah, salm, hajj. And then they even talk about some issues of slaughtering, where' the slaughtering animals, what makes an animal halal, what makes an animal haram, and, and, and different things like that. All right? So that's that's one very good book. Uh, within the Hanafi school and then there's even uh, within uh, the Shafi'i school, Sheikh Musa Ferber Right, he translates a lot of Shafi'i books into uh, the English language um, uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf uh, Hansen from California, he 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 translates a lot of the Maliki books into English Right, and uh, uh, and uh, the books of the Hanbali, Hanbali Fiqh um, a, a lot of the Arab scholars right they are also well versed in the English language so they translate those books as well so uh, There's really like no one single book that I can recommend to anyone whether it's difficult. It depends on a person's uh, Background how much knowledge that person has how deep they want to go Or right? does the person just want to know the basics? Does a person want to really get to know why 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 do we do this right and stuff like that? So it depends on that, but it's a journey, right? I, I recommend everyone that in your free time read a bit Right, read a bit about right, whichever madhab you follow. Right, first start by reading about the imam themselves. Right? If you follow Abu Hanifa, read the biography of Abu Hanifa. If you follow uh, uh, Malik, read his biography. Right? All of these scholars were amazing. Right? And that will increase you in love for the scholar and appreciation for the work that they've done. So that, so that will make it easier for you to follow them. And it will make it easier for you to convince yourself right, to trust them right, over right, what you think. Right? So that's, that's just a few thoughts. Asha'ala. <laughs> yeah. Alright,
2: insha'Allah. We're going to wrap up this episode. And we hope to see you in the next one. Assalamu
0: alaikum. Wa alaykum as-salamu alaykum. Wa as